You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, bringing to you the Editor's Choices of Articles for the February 2019 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology. February is generally the coldest month in Toronto. I will begin with the first article with it examines cardiovascular risk factors in patients with rheumatoid arthritis entitled Performance of the Expanded Cardiovascular Risk Prediction Score for Rheumatoid Arthritis is Not Superior to the ACC AHA Risk Calculator by Wallin and colleagues from Umia University, Sweden. Multiple studies have shown there is an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with RA, and therefore identification of high-risk patients is important to intervene to decrease this risk. As current risk calculators developed for the general population do not perform well in patients with RA, RA risk-specific calculators have been developed. One of these is called the expanded risk score for cardiovascular disease and RA, or much easier to remember, the ERS-RA. The aim of this study by Walling and et al. was to assess the predictive accuracy of the ERS-RA as compared to the risk calculator without these RA-specific factors. So what did they do? So after exclusion of patients with previous cardiovascular disease or missing data, they examined a prospectively collected cohort of 655 new onset RA patients aged 40 years or older from northern Sweden. The estimated 10-year risk for cardiovascular event was then calculated both using both of these different scores. The RA specific factors used included the Clinical Disease Activity Index, or CEDA, which was calculated to be positive if greater than 10. A modified hack of greater than 0.5 was a risk factor. The use of prednisone and RA duration of greater than 10 years. The ACC AHA estimation was analyzed both as the crude data and adjusted according to the ULAR recommendation, which was multiplying the score times 1.5. These risk scores were then compared to each other and to the observed cardiovascular events of fatal or non-fatal MI, coronary heart disease, and fatal or non-fatal stroke. After mean follow-up of 8.5 years, 11% developed a cardiovascular event with nine deaths, 25 patients developed an MI, and 39 had a stroke. Read the article to see how well or poorly the ESRRA and the ACC AHA 10-year risk scores performed as compared to the number of observed events and compared to each other. You'll be able to determine if there were any RA-specific factors that influenced the performance of the ESRRA risk score, and in which patients in your practice the risk score performs well. The second article examines the effect of anti-tumor necrosis factor agents on the risk of anterior uveitis in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. 
title actually gives you the answer, as is entitled, Reduced Occurrence Rate of Acute Anterior Uveitis in Ankylosing Spondylitis Patients Treated with Golimumab, the GoEasy study, and it is by Van Buntum and colleagues from Amsterdam Rheumatology and Immunology Center and nine outpatient clinics in the Netherlands. As may be predicted by the title, the aim of the study was to determine if the use of golimumab altered the occurrence rate of acute anterior uveitis in patients with AS. The secondary aim was to examine the effect of golimumab on disease activity in patients with AS. So the article itself was a multi-center prospective real-life study of 93 patients treated for 12 months with golimumab. A real-life study generally means it is an open-label study of the use of a drug in clinical practice, and how it is used is dictated by the investigator, and in whom it is used for is also decided by the investigator. In this case, the drug was golimumab, and patients could have had a history of acute anterior uveitis and could have been on a previous anti-TNF agent. The mean duration of the disease in the cohort was seven years, and the median ASTAS score was 3.1. Of the 93 patients, 45% had been previously treated with an anti-TNF agent, and 27% had a history of acute anterior uveitis. In this cohort, which both anti-TNF naive and anti-TNF experienced patients the authors compared the rate of occurrence of acute anterior uveitis during golimumab therapy to the occurrence in the year prior to anti-TNF treatment. Read the article to find how significant the decreased rate of anterior uveitis was in the golimumab-treated patients and what the efficacy of golimumab was for AS disease activity at 12 months. They also examine the safety profile. After reading this article, I hope you'll have a better understanding of the effects of golimumab as both altering the risk of acute anterior uveitis and what its efficacy is on disease activity. The third article focuses on patients with systemic sclerosis and examines the risk factors for pulmonary hypertension. The paper is entitled Risk Factors for Mortality and Cardiopulmonary Hospitalization in Systemic Sclerosis Patients at Risk for Pulmonary Hypertension in the FAROS study. It's by Sue and colleagues. It is a multi-centered prospective study from the FAROS registry, which was established in 2005 to determine the natural history of and risk factors for pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary arterial hypertension in systemic sclerosis patients. There are 20 centers throughout the United States involved in the Ferros Registry. The aim of the study was to identify predictors of mortality and cardiopulmonary hospitalizations in patients at risk for pulmonary hypertension. The at-risk population for pulmonary hypertension was identified by echocardiogram or by pulmonary function testing. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality with a secondary outcome of hospitalization for cardiopulmonary disease. These Cox proportional hazards models to assess the predictors of outcome. This 
study cohort consisted of 236 at-risk patients from the total cohort of 558 patients. The 236 patients were followed for a median of four years, during which time 35 developed pulmonary hypertension. Therefore, 201 patients remained in the at-risk group. 25 deaths occurred in these patients, of which 36% were cardiopulmonary-related. As may be expected, hospitalizations were common. Read this article to find out what risk factors were associated with poor outcome, which included death and hospitalization for cardiopulmonary disease. Find out what the recommendations are for following and intervening in patients at risk for pulmonary hypertension in patients with systemic sclerosis. The fourth article to discuss is regarding the prediction of knee cartilage loss in patients with knee pain with pre-radiographic disease or Kellgren-Lawrence grade of less than two. It is entitled Quadriceps Weakness and the Risk of Knee Cartilage Loss on Magnetic Resonance Imaging in a Population-Based Cohort with Knee Pain. And it's from Chin and colleagues from the University of British Columbia, Canada, and Boston University, USA. The aim of the study was to determine if quadriceps weakness was associated with MRI-observed cartilage loss after three years of follow-up. So what did they do and how did they do it? The cohort consisted of 163 patients with knee pain, and they were aged 40 to 79 years. These patients were examined by manual isometric strength testing at the bedside to determine quadriceps weakness. An MRI of the more symptomatic knee was obtained at baseline and again after a mean of 3.3 years. Secondary analyses were undertaken to examine the correlation of compartment-specific cartilage loss after adjustments. Of the 163 subjects, quadriceps weakness was seen in 11.9%. Read the article to find out the hazard ratio associated with quadriceps weakness as a predictor of knee cartilage loss. You'll also find out the association or lack of association of quadriceps strength with cartilage loss in both the medial and lateral tibiofemoral compartments as well as the patellofemoral compartment. Find out the recommendations of the authors on how a bedside examination of quadriceps strength can help you to predict cartilage loss in people with symptomatic knee pain, but Kellgren-Lawrence grade less than two on x-ray. Our last but not least, the important articles examines the issue of primary and secondary fibromyalgia. It is entitled, Primary and Secondary Fibromyalgia is the Same, The Universality of Polysymptomatic Distress. This is by Wolf and colleagues from the University of Kansas School of Medicine, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, USA, the University of Twente, the Netherlands, and Technische Universität Munich, Germany. I also want to direct you to the editorial that accompanies this article, and it is entitled Secondary Fibromyalgia by Bennett and Friend. I will review a little background to put this article into perspective. For many years, patients were dichotomized into either having fibromyalgia or not. 
In 2010, a tool, the Polysymptomatic Distress Tool, or PSD, was developed to evaluate and measure symptom severity. This tool was subsequently refined in 2011 and 2016. It was shown that patients with a higher PSD score had more symptoms and a worse clinical course. The aim of the study was to determine whether RA and pain patients were similar in self-reported outcomes when studied at the same level of PSD. So how did they do this? They studied 1,525 patients with a clinical diagnosis of fibromyalgia and 12,037 patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They were then compared using the 2016 modified criteria for fibromyalgia and the PSD score. They used regression models to compare patients with potential and actual fibromyalgia to rheumatoid patients with potential or actual secondary fibromyalgia. As previously in other cohorts, higher PSD scores were associated with more symptoms or an abnormal status. This occurred in both cohorts. Read the article to see if how the clinical variables were similar or differed in patients with primary fibromyalgia or fibromyalgia associated with RA. Find out why the authors believe the primary and secondary fibromyalgia are equivalent with respect to symptom burden and why PSD scores should be used. I strongly advise you to read the company editorial which examines the results of the study and may give you a different point of view. I want to thank you all for listening to my review of what I felt were particularly important articles appearing in the February 2019 issue of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope my summaries will lead you to reading not only these five articles, but in fact all of the articles appearing in the February 2019 issue of the journal. Please read either the print edition or the online edition, which can be found at www.jroom.org. If you have any comments on the summary or articles appearing in the journal Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com.